Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. I have a question for you. How's your bracket looking? I had, I had St. Peter's going this far. I just want you to know. I, I saw it coming. I'm just kidding. I definitely did not. But um, I'm curious, who do you have winning your national championship? Just shout it out real quick. Oh, wow. Okay. Wisconsin's done. That's for sure. Um, Duke. Okay. Kansas is still in it. Nova. Somebody said Nova. Jess said Villanova. Okay. Je- Jess thought Villanova was in Virginia. Um, it's actually in Philadelphia. So you can tell she was really rooting on the Wildcats of Villanova. Jay Wright, there you go. I, I love March Madness. Uh, it's one of my favorite times of the year. Um, it's actually another season in the liturgical calendar that I observe and I practice. But um, no, I love uh, March Madness and this time of the year. We are looking at a potential Final Four showdown between Duke and Carolina in Coach K's final year. What? If it Look... If I'm Hubert Davis, I don't want to play Duke. I do not want to play Duke. After beating them in Cameron, I just I wouldn't want to play Coach K at this moment. I think destiny is on his side here. But um, today, we're not going to talk about March Madness uh, any longer. We're going to talk about the Bible and about Jesus. And um, we are going to dive back into our human teaching series that we have been in during the Lenten season. We across the globe, Christians all across the world, two million of us, matter of fact, or excuse me, two billion of us all across the world are in this season known as Lent. It's a 46-day period that pre, uh, precedes Epiphany Tide and then moves into the Easter Tide season. Keep in mind, Easter is not a single day. Resurrection Sunday is a day. Easter is a season. 50 days as well. So I hope that we, as people in the West who just go very quickly through life, can orient ourselves around the story of Jesus by pressing into these seasons. The liturgical calendar really is just all about us anchoring ourselves around the story of Jesus. That's all that it is. And it helps us realize that time is not centered on us. It's actually centered on a larger story, and that story being about Jesus of Nazareth. And so this season that we're in is referred to as Lent. It is a time of repentance and reflection and fasting and pressing into the reality of our need for healing, our need for restoration, our need for redemption, and our need for a Savior. And um, this human series has been a way for us to dive deeper into what it means to be human, what it means to be people. And I think for many of us, we haven't thought about this question often, but we do think about the question of who am I? No matter your socioeconomic status, your ethnicity, where you come from, where you are in life, you ask this question at some point, who am I? And what am I to do in this world? And so for us, we feel like the higher level question that is connected to that one is what does it mean to be human? And what do humans require for flourishing? What is it that we require to thrive? In the first week, we discussed a theology of the Imago Dei, which is Latin for image of God, 
You can go back and listen to that on the podcast or watch it on YouTube to kind of get an orientation around this teaching series. And what it is that uniquely distinguishes humans from other living creatures being our capacity to love and communicate with our Creator. We have a unique capacity as humans, specifically to love and to reflect and to choose to communicate with our Creator. Last week, Pastor Jay taught on freedom and desires. That the modern understanding of freedom, which is essentially do whatever you want, or a popular phrase is do what makes you feel good, conflicts with a classical understanding, which is more so about being able to pursue the common good or to be able to do what you should in the world. That it is possible to be externally free, but internally in bondage to ourselves. And the image that came to my mind with this point that Jay gave last week was this image of being locked in a room from the inside out. That many of us might be externally free, that the door's been unlocked, so to speak, but we have intended to lock it back, and we choose to lock ourselves in, and we become in bondage to ourselves. So we can be externally free, but internally in bondage. Uh, Pastor Ephraim Smith says, the new slavery is this, to have the knowledge of Christ's freedom, but not choose it. In doing so, we enslave ourselves. To have freedom in Christ, the knowledge of the freedom of Christ, but not choose it. Keep in mind, freedom is about agency. It's about having the ability to choose. And this new slavery is having the freedom or the ability to choose Christ, but not choosing it. And by doing so, enslaving our self. As I said, freedom is about the ability to choose in our life. Beth Felker Jones, who's a theologian at Wheaton College, says Christian freedom cannot be found in unbridled autonomy or in being bound to the fallen kingdoms of this world. Both of these false narratives are under the tyranny of sin. But Christian freedom, ours in Christ, is different in kind. In Christ, we are freed from something and for something. We are freed from sin and death and freed for love and holiness. This is a beautiful depiction and definition of Christian freedom. Now, last week, we also took note that to be human is to desire. All of us have desires. All of us have wants. We all have the ability to love, and we do by our very nature. We are lovers at our core. We're not just thinking things. But our desires are often distorted. Or we fulfill those desires with things that don't fully complete them. Philosopher Dallas Willard says, desire itself is not bad. God has desires. Even angels have desires. But in human beings, they have been malformed and twisted so that you must always be suspicious of desires. We live in a world where the pursuit of desire is conceived of as good. No civilization has been able to prosper on that principle. 
All of the great civilizations have been suspicious of desires. Great civilizations have been able to set limits and say no to desire. We can't say no to anything today. The only thing we can say no to is saying, or the only thing we can say no to is saying no to no itself. We are desire-centered creatures as humans. And I want to sit in this part of the conversation briefly. So I kind of want to sit in where we were last week for a little bit longer this morning in the conversation around freedom and desires. Where we most often get tripped up, I believe, is in thinking our strongest desires are our deepest desires. Better yet, our strongest desires, plural, versus our deepest desire, singular. There is a vast difference between an urge and a longing. There is a vast difference within us between an appetite and a longing. For us to pursue fulfilling our strongest desire as though it is our deepest desire will only lead to disillusionment, disenchantment, and ultimately disappointment. Because we get these two mixed And our desires are not equal. And they conflict often. They're not linear. Perfect example, go to the grocery store, stand in the aisle. On one side of the aisle when you're checking out is all these magazines of beautiful looking humans. We're talking about how they just lost 150 pounds. Oh my gosh, I want to look like that. They look so good. And on the other side is all these candy bars. And you're like, but I want a Snickers. Both of those are desires but they are conflicting. You can't have one and the other at the same time. Another place we go awry in this conversation is we often make our desires synonymous with our identity. That our desires are our identity. That we are what we have an appetite for. The problem with such a notion is that it is too fluid and ever-changing creating a lifetime of identity crisis or a crisis of identity because our desires are fluid. They're ever-changing. And identity, which we're going to get into more later in the teaching series, has everything to do with that which you are one with. If you go and look up the etymology of the word identity, it has everything to do with that which you are one with and to that which you belong So whatever you belong to, or whatever you are one with, that is a part of your identity. We're going to come back to this later on. But I want us to know this morning that you do not belong to your appetites and desires. Identity and appetites are different. This is something that we in the West deeply struggle with. Often we become our desires, or our desires are what define us. But the reality is, you do not belong to your appetites. They belong to you. You are not one with your desires. They are a part of your whole soul. So this is where limitation comes in. Jay touched on this briefly last week, the importance of limits in our life. To be truly free and to truly experience flourishing We must embrace our limitations. As Jay mentioned, endless choices 
isn't the pinnacle of the human experience. Rather, what we choose is most important. We must embrace limits. Put an eight-year-old kid in downtown Greensboro and say, have at it, buddy. Do whatever you want. They're not going to flourish. They're not going to thrive. We have to have some sort of limits. Matter of fact, on Battleground or Wendover, take all the lines off the road and say, get to work or go to Costco, whatever it may be. What you're going to see is a mess. Wrecks everywhere. Why? We need limits to get to where we're supposed to go. But we live in a world that's demolishing all boundaries and limits. And we're wondering why we're anxious, fatigued, isolated, depressed. I even think about this with these seniors graduating. I've heard this over and over again at graduations. It's like, the world's your oyster. Go change the world. You can do it. The week after that, you're like, I don't know what to do. Thank you for that charge, but that's not helpful. We need limitation. We need boundaries. We need a guide. This is why the rhythm of life is so important in our community is because it indexes us like a trellis in a direction, just like lanes on a highway. When we have endless choices and no limits, it actually paralyzes and cripples our brain. There's a ton of psychology research around this and neuroscience. This produces what's called decision fatigue. Think about the Cheesecake Factory menu. Woo! Oh, dear Lord. That's a textbook. I don't know if Cheesecake Factory is an Italian restaurant, if it's American, if it's a Mexican restaurant, if it's Asian. I'm not really sure what it is. And I get so overwhelmed. Or like, you know those family restaurants that have like so many random things on the menu? And you're like, this is not helpful at all. I'm getting anxious just looking at the menu. That's called decision fatigue at a very micro level. Why? Because there's so many choices and options. Another metaphor to use is ask an artist to make something for you and say, hey, could you make something for me? And he's like, yeah, totally. Or she's like, yeah, I'd love to make something for you. And then they say, what do you want me to make? And you're like, well, honestly, you just do whatever you want. It's up to you. Most artists are like, I, I actually, no, um, I, I need some direction. Um, rather say something like, why don't you make, some, make a painting, but tie your dominant hand behind your back and paint something. Most artists are going to come alive. Why? Because limitation breeds creativity. Limitation is actually good. We need boundaries. Uh, Tim Keller has this wonderful picture here where he says, because a fish absorbs oxygen from water, not air, it's free only if it's restricted to water. If a fish is freed from the river and put out on the grass to explore, its freedom to move and live is destroyed. Real freedom isn't restrictionless. It's finding the right ones. Freedom is not the ultimate of the human experience. It's actually life and flourishing. A fish out of water, though it's freed, cannot thrive. It cannot flourish. Um, a couple of weeks ago, Jordan, I don't know what was on her mind, if she was having a tough day or what, the homegirl ate basically a whole tub of cookie dough. And I'm like, did I do something? Like, are you okay? <laughs> and later on in that night, she was not feeling well <laughs> at all. 
And I know, let's be honest, I think all of us love eating raw cookie dough. Do we not? It's like, ugh, just something about like Tall House raw cookie dough, those little block squares. I love it, you know? Um, and, and I can eat one of them, you know, but the reality is when you eat one, you're like, I just really want a few more. Um, so Jordan was like, forget the squares. I'm getting a tub of this stuff. And I'm going to eat it like it's ice cream. And she eats it, eats it, and she wakes up in the middle of the night, and she's feeling horrible, feeling terrible. And I think that analogy fits well into this one. That though something may taste good, too much of it, it will actually destroy you over time. Pop culture says we should indulge ourselves with our unlimited freedom. To gorge on pleasure, feast on momentary satisfaction. But the New Testament calls this lust, and even more so, enslavement to ourselves. Given the unlimited desires, when we gorge, it actually leaves us empty and craving more. Despite its inability to fulfill what it promises, we come back like Pavlov's dog, begging for more, thinking that this time around, ultimate satisfaction will come. Yet it doesn't. We have one little piece of cookie dough, and we're like, ah, it's pretty good, I just want more. Knowing that, you know, there's a potential for salmonella here. Um, but then when you gorge yourself, you end up like Jordan, but in the soul, in your spirit. You're sick, but it tasted good. But you're like, I wish I hadn't have done that. But like Pavlov's dog, we come right back to it, expecting a different result. We need freedom, friends. But also, we need limitation, restraint, and self-control, especially in our modern era. To make this idea more concise, our current cultural moment is characterized by a few philosophical modes of living, which all center around the idol of freedom and autonomy of the self. Here's a few of them. The first is hedonism. Okay? These are some words for you to, to think on today. Hedonism, which is the pursuit of pleasure. The pursuit of pleasure. This is a Freudian idea, which, by the way, Sigmund Freud has been debunked by most of modern psychologists, including his um, disciple or apprentice, Carl Jung. All right? But we still, for whatever reason, are like all about this Freudian idea, even though, again, he's been debunked by um, modern psychologists. It's the pursuit of pleasure. The second is consumerism. Just think Amazon. Consumerism, consumption. More specifically, around the idea of coping mechanisms. We consume as a way of coping or, or self-medication. We escape. We want to escape reality. Netflix, binging Netflix, you know, binge shopping, binge eating. Even relationships can be consumed as though people are objects. Sex can be consumed as though a person is just used as a means for your own pursuit of pleasure. It's consumption, consumerism. Buy, 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 just a little bit more, right? Just a little bit more and I'll be there. If I can get just a little bit more, I'll have enough. If I consume, I'll be able to escape or numb the pain of reality. Dallas Willard says, when desire conflicts with reality, sooner or later, reality wins. Sooner or, sooner or later, that pain inside of you will come to the surface. Sooner or later. The third is individualism, which is essentially humanism where I am the center of the universe. 
that I only belong to myself. I don't belong to anyone else. Not to my parents, not to you, not to others. I just watched a Pixar movie called Turning Red. Have you guys seen that one about the red pandas? That movie is quintessential individualism. Quintessential. A kid's movie. It's teaching individualism. I'm the center of, of my life. I'm the center of the universe. I make my own decisions. I don't belong to anyone else. And all three of these views have freedom as the ultimate. And it impacts both the contemporary right and left on the political spectrum. Mark Sayers, who's a cultural commentary, says both the contemporary left and right seek to expand personal freedom as a solution to the human condition. Both see the height of human good as the experience of pleasure and positive feelings. You just get there in a different way. Freedom is still the ultimate. But though we need freedom to flourish, we also require two other inputs as human beings as well. We've touched on these just briefly. Meaning and community. We need freedom. We need agency. We need the ability to choose because we have to love. We have to choose to love. We also need meaning and community. We see these three in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, which I'm going to get to in just a second. Finally, I'm going to get to the scriptures. So don't get all freaked out. You're like, is he going to teach the Bible this morning? I'll get there in a second, okay? Which, by the way, if you read the, te- if you read the scriptures, there's no specific way to preach a sermon. I just want you to know that. In the New Testament, there is no like, cookie-cutter way to preach a sermon. So just bear with me, okay? Fantastic. Here's our challenge. To experience both meaning and community, it requires that we restrict and restrain our personal freedoms to some degree. In fact, you can't love someone without giving up freedom. You can't fight for a cause without giving up freedom. You can't be a part of something bigger than yourself without giving up some sort of freedom. I think about this women's gathering that was yesterday, which looked amazing. I couldn't come, but I heard together was awesome. Looked like a bohemian boutique in here. The ladies that helped put that on had to give up freedom to be a part of it. Same is true for our entire life, but our human system is lopsided and imbalanced. Sayers goes on to say that we have forgotten the wisdom that to find happiness and fulfillment, we sometimes need to reduce our freedom to gain meaning in relationships. He then goes on, we are drowning in freedoms, but thirsting for meaning. We are drowning in freedoms. We're thirsting specifically for Meaning. So, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, provides for us a system for flourishing. Paul provides us, I believe, a system for human flourishing. And it reads this. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be what? Free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Here, Paul the Apostle provides the disgruntled church in Galatia a framework for what we require to flourish, specifically as spirit-led, Christ-centered people. Freedom, meaning, or specifically in this text, service, and community or relationships, which we will get to next week, and Vania Claiborne is going to preach and teach on that topic. 
Now, y'all don't get excited when I'm teaching like that. Wow. Tania, you should be honored. No pressure at all. In context, the church in Galatia seems to have a bit of a split audience in terms of how they have responded to this new covenant and life in Christ by way of the Spirit. Some, the Judaizers specifically, seem to think that we are still bound to the law and only receive the Spirit through obedience. But Paul says this isn't so because we have been made children of God due to the atoning work of Christ on the cross and our faith in Him. If you read Galatians chapter 3, you'll see all that laid out by the Apostle Paul. Others, it seems, are on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, acting as though because of freedom in Christ, we now have liberty to indulge in sinful desire, what Paul calls the flesh. Often when Paul is talking about the flesh, he's talking about carnal desires within us that are counter to God. But this isn't so. Neither legalism nor antinomianism, which is essentially to say there's no law, no rule, no nothing, but rather we are to be a spirit-led people. In fact, I love that he charges the Galatians to use their freedom for good rather than for themselves. For too long, the church has been clear on what we can't do but hasn't always provided an alternative to channel our desires into what we can do. There's a lot of, you can't do this, you can't do that. And I find it fascinating. If you read Jesus' teaching in the gospel, he never really says you can't. What he does say, if you do this thing, if you do X, it will lead to Y. They're just statements of fact. Jesus was a great philosopher. We never think of him as such. He doesn't give a lot of I can'ts or you can't. He says, if you do this thing, this is going to be the, the implication. And for too long, we've gotten caught up on drawing hard boundaries and have a very soft center. But what we need is a hard center and soft boundaries. And I think Paul is doing a wonderful job here of showing us a model that we can use practically in our own life. And I find it striking that Paul, in this passage, doesn't just say that we shouldn't use our freedom to indulge the flesh. He could stop there. He could say, don't use your freedom to indulge those carnal desires that you have. End of point. He doesn't do that. Instead, he provides a way to redirect or refocus our freedom and inclinations to indulge. And that's what we need. Most of us are addicted because we can't redirect those desires elsewhere. And that's what, we, that's what we need. We need to be able to redirect these passions within us in a different direction. And this is what Paul is saying. Here's how we can do that. He gives freedom a new meaning. Specifically, he says, rather serve one another humbly in love. Now, when we see the word rather or therefore, this is a conjunction connecting two points. And he's saying, instead of this X, do Y instead. When we see words like rather or therefore, it's important to read the front side of that word and the back side of that word. Because he's saying, do this other thing instead of that thing. Too many of us have gotten caught up in the, I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to do that thing, and we forget about doing the other thing. Okay? So, serve one another humbly in love. Paul goes to the very core of what it means to be human. 
the very essence of human anthropology. We are meaning-making machines. And indulging the flesh, friends, does not produce meaning. Indulging in your desires that are carnal, that produce shame often, and produce us wanting more and leave us empty, it does not produce meaning. This is a very important sentence I want for you all to write down as a takeaway for today. Pleasure cannot produce purpose. Pleasure cannot produce purpose. Hedonistic tendencies will not produce meaning. And we're seeing the evidence of such in our time in the West. I was reading a study this past week on countries across the world that have the lowest levels of depression and anxiety. And most of them are primitive nations. They don't have as many options as we do. Is that not fascinating? Is that not interesting? Primitive places across the world have less anxiety than we do. We have, quote unquote, everything. More specifically here, he connects meaning with serving in love. Serving in love. Now, have you ever wondered what the word meaning actually means? We say it a lot, but maybe we aren't sure exactly what it's communicating. I'm going to give a brief definition for all of us. Meaning, as we know it, refers to intention, purpose, and aim. Or, more specifically, that which is intended to be expressed. That's what we mean when we say meaning. Meaning has everything to do with intention, purpose, and aim, or that which is intended to be expressed. And this goes right back to the image of God conversation we talked about two weeks ago. To believe that we are creatures assumes a creator. To assume a creator assumes a design. And to assume a design assumes intention or meaning. Everything that is designed has intention behind it by the designer. And for Paul, meaning found in the Spirit is demonstrated or expressed in service to God and others. That's like our highest moral good is serving God and serving others. Going even further, service seems to be an antidote to a life filled with pleasure-seeking, lust, and consumption. Service is an antidote to a life filled with the pursuit of pleasure, lust, and consumption. You know, it seems to me that some of the most miserable people live a life that is entirely centered on themselves. Think about that. Some of the most miserable people that that I know, anecdotally, seem to live lives that are really centered on themselves. They're, They're narcissistic. On top of that, I get very leery of the disposition and and content of a believer's soul when they aren't serving. When a person isn't well, they usually don't serve. Often people that are engaged in these pleasure-seeking activities, living in shame, 
not living in freedom, in bondage to themselves. Because they're in bondage or enslaved to themselves, they can't see beyond themselves. They're in a room like a, 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 a room like this with the doors closed. It's just them. And so I get leery of individuals who don't serve yet proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and King. Because when a person isn't well, they usually don't serve. And I'm not saying that just because you serve, that means you're well. That's not it. What I am saying is that often when a person is not doing well, not only do they stop serving, they usually retreat into isolation. So keep that in mind. Yet, the servant is the highest role in the kingdom of heaven and provides the greatest sense of meaning. The greatest title that you and I are ever going to get in the kingdom of heaven is servant. Why? Because that's the title given to Jesus. He's a servant. He specifically says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 11 and 12, the greatest among you will be your what? Servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you are a servant by nature, you are going to experience the highest type of recognition in the kingdom of heaven. You will be the greatest. This is the paradoxical nature of the kingdom of God. The word used by both Jesus and Paul in the Greek conveys the idea of a bond servant. Specifically, someone in the voluntary sense or someone who's given up oneself to another. In the Greco-Roman world, about 75%, 80% of the population was bond servants. You would give yourself up to a family or to another. In fact, sometimes bond servants had bond servants themselves. It's a very known reality. I'm not talking in the trafficked sense of the word. I'm talking about the sense of voluntarily giving yourself up to another. The word is doulos in the Greek. And Paul is subverting the human's natural disposition of being a slave to oneself. Because here's the deal. We all are servants of someone or something. There's not one of us in here that's not a slave or a servant to something or someone. Because again, it conveys the idea of belonging to someone. To be owned by someone. And all of us belong to someone or something. Even if it is ourselves. He is subverting this disposition that we have naturally being a slave to ourselves, serving our own desires. And he's flipping it on its head by saying, no, 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 no. Turn that service to yourself around toward God and others. This is what it truly means to be human. More specifically, this is what it truly means to have Christ in you. You're taking on the very nature of Christ. And if Jesus is the model human, which he is, he shows us the way of servanthood. A core reason and motivation for Jesus to come was service. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8, which was potentially the earliest known hymn in the church. This would have been sung, more than likely, in churches across the first century. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here we go. Here's the hymn. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Here we see restricted freedom. He is putting limitations around himself by becoming human. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here is the mode of living for Jesus. The motivation was service. And he restricted his freedom so that he might serve another. Again, 
Jesus does what the proto-humans weren't able to do. Adam and Eve used their freedom to serve themselves rather than serve God and one another. He is flipping it on its head. He's the second Adam, as Paul says. Despite it being part of their anthropological DNA, to serve is to be human, and to be human is to serve. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, at the very beginning of the narrative of the Scriptures, let alone the entire story of creation. The Lord God said, It is not good for the, for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, some of us read this and don't think at all about New Testament servanthood. Most of us have been in spaces where this passage is specifically used, and, and, and more specifically around the word helper, is used in complementarian spaces to subordinate wives' roles to husbands. But that seems afar from the understanding of the original language. The word helper in the Hebrew is azer. E-Z-E-R, azer. It's interesting because it's actually a masculine noun, not even a feminine noun. and can also be translated as rescuer or even savior. It appears 22 times in the Hebrew Bible, and the majority of the time is in reference to Yahweh, who certainly isn't subordinate to humans. Let's look at a few verses. Psalm 70, verse 5. But as for me, I am poor and needy. Come quickly to me, O God. You are my, what? Help and my deliverer. You are my Azer. Lord, do not delay. Psalm 159. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help. He is their Azer and shield. Psalm 121.2. My help, my Azer, comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. To be an Azer is not limited to women. And what if being a helper wasn't unique to Eve, but rather part of what it means to be human? What if this was our creator's intention all along? If we are made in the image of God and God is a helper and servant, what if from the origin of humanity, we were innately wired to help serve and offer ourselves to one another? This is why Paul says in Ephesians that we are to mutually submit ourselves to one another. To serve or to be a helper or a rescuer or a savior is not unique to women. It's unique to humans across the board, male and female. And I believe that Adam was meant to be an Azer as well to Eve. And the Eve was meant to be Azer to Adam. We submit ourselves to one another, especially if we read the New Testament call to servanthood and helping one another and offering ourselves voluntarily to the other. It's innately connected to what it means to be human. Eugene Cho says, What will move skeptics, cynics, and critics are Christians who love God and love their neighbors, including neighbors who don't look like them, by willingly and humbly serving their needs. This is what it means to be human. And ultimately, this is what it means to look like Jesus in our world. This past week, I was reading an article from Psychology Today around the idea of serving others and doing good. And here's what it said. Research has found many examples of how doing good in ways big or small not only feels good, but also does us good. For instance, 
the well-being boosting and depression lowering benefits of, they use the word volunteering, have been repeatedly documented, as has the sense of meaning and purpose that often accompanies altruistic behavior. Even when it comes to money, spending it on others predicts increases in happiness compared to spending it on ourselves. Moreover, there is now neural evidence from fMRI studies suggesting a link between generosity and happiness in the brain. For example, this is fascinating, donating money to charitable organizations activates the same mesolimbic regions of the brain that respond to monetary rewards or sex. In fact, the mere intent and commitment to generosity can stimulate neural change and make people happier. We are wired neurologically to serve another, to give ourselves to another. You're like, man, I'm experiencing a ton of depression right now and anxiety. Let me challenge you. Serve. Give yourself to someone else. I promise you'll see something happen in your brain. So when we consume, indulge, and serve ourselves, we are rejecting our call as image bearers. We are to be contributors and servants of sacrificial love, offering ourselves to another, seeking their good above our own, just like Jesus. And we see this exemplified in the gospel story. And it's important to recognize that meaning this morning, friends and family, meaning comes from stories. Not from data, not from facts, stories. Because we are meaning-making machines and meaning comes from stories, not mere facts, the story we believe about humans, our world, and God matters. The early church became a movement by telling a story. This is what it means to witness or to testify. 75% of the scriptures is story or narrative. Stories provide meaning. And the story of Jesus, the gospel, is one of service. It's one of service. And this is why meaning cannot be self-made. Some, some will talk about, specifically agnostics or atheists, will talk about how meaning can be self-made. The problem, though, is that meaning comes from stories beyond ourselves. Because it comes from stories that have been told, not from ones that are being written. Stories produce meaning because they've been told, not from the reality of us writing them. Alistair MacIntyre, another philosopher, said, what I am to do is preceded by what story I am a part of. This is why the story of Jesus is so very important. And when we seek the common good of another, we have to have a reference point of what is good. We have to have a reference point to say this is the actual intention of how you're meant to live. When you see a friend hurting, you're like, that's not how you're meant to live. Why? Because there is a story embedded in us as human beings that says we're meant to flourish. We're meant to experience Eden. We're meant to experience delight. The problem, though, is like the folks who were in Babel, we try to create the human project on our own through tech, technique, therapy, ourselves, you name it, human invention, to try and experience ultimate life. And it always leads to chaos. That's what Babel means, confusion. We have to press into the life script and the way of life given to us by Jesus by way of his story. We know what it means to be human because we can look at the story of Jesus, a story marked not by self-indulgence, 
not consumption or pleasure-seeking, but of service, sacrifice, and love. And as I close, I want you all to know that service, if we're asking the question, what does it mean to ultimately serve? Service requires sacrificing your time, talent, and treasure for the good of another. We talked about this in our rhythm of life with contribution, contributing. Time, talent, and treasure. Are you giving your time to others? Are you giving your time to our community? Are you giving your talent to others, to the city or to the community at large? Are you giving your treasure to the community, to others at large? This is what it means to serve. And I promise you, you experience fullness if you step into it. If you're living in bondage this morning, locked from the inside out, I encourage you to take a step and begin to serve something or someone and begin to see what happens, knowing that the motivation is the story of Jesus, the ultimate model of what it means to be human.